I have this student in my classroom who comes to class every day. He's super tired. He puts his head down. Students can't put their heads down in class. If a principal walks past, I'll get in trouble. So I have to write this student up. And I write the student up three times and the student has to go to in-school suspension. After that, he has to be suspended. Whole time, the kid's parents work like an overnight shift. So he's responsible for like his brothers and sisters or they live in a house with like different. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Arshil Monsanto has worked in advocacy, public policy, and community organizing for 15 years where she has been responsible for implementing evidence-based strategies to create environmental change through public policy. She currently serves as the Director of Organizing Strategy in Houston for Leadership for Educational Equity. In the past, she has spearheaded advocacy campaigns for organizations including the Illinois Department of Public Health, American Heart Association, Texans Standing Tall, and Texas State Alliance of YMCAs. Arshel wrote this book because she is passionate about creating meaningful change through public policy. When Arshel is not working, you can find her binging on reality shows, searching for the perfect cupcake, or complaining about exercising. Welcome back to Diversity Dish. My guest today is Arshel Monsanto. Arshel, how are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me on today. I am so happy to have you. It, I know we've had to reschedule our, our talk a couple of times, so third time is a charm. Third time is a charm, yes. <laughs> so I, want, I always like to start off my conversations with what is it that you are most passionate about right now? So today I am most passionate about being the best parent that I can be. And that means advocating for my son. He's five years old. We just sent him to basketball camp. He's come home just like extremely tired and I love it. But um, (laughs) in my passion for him, it's also a passion for all black boys and just making sure they receive like the equitable education that they deserve so they can grow up and become productive citizens and do whatever they want to do in the world. Yes, absolutely. I know, I know that feeling. I have a son too. He's 15, going to be 16. And that's all I want for him. I want him to be able to grow up in this world and do what he wants to do and do it equitably and comfortably without a lot of, uh, you know, things weighing down on him, oppression, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so how do you, because I think probably what you do kind of ties into that love of your son and wanting everything to be equitable. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you are putting out into the world, because I think that this is how I found you. Yes. So 
I worked in public policy for 15 years now, and the, the bulk of my career has been in public edu public health, public mm -hmm. policy space. So I worked for great organizations, mostly nonprofits. And in that work, I was in charge of trying to get smoke-free um, policies passed. Mm -hmm. um, believe it or not, in Texas, where I live, we still do not have a statewide um, smoke-free oh. um, policy. So there are some places in certain parts of Texas, you can go to a restaurant and still request um, a smoking section. <clears throat> so um, tobacco prevention, youth obesity prevention. And then about three years ago, I shifted to the public education space. Mm -hmm. And in that, I learned about some things that I had just been extremely naive to. And that one thing that's just like popping into mind is school discipline. So when I was in high school, I got into trouble, got suspended, and, you know, it happened. I put mm -hmm. it behind me, never told anybody about it. I mean, the people that were there, they knew. But like, mm -hmm. as I grew up and as I evolved, it was always something that I was extremely ashamed of because mm -hmm. I should have made better decisions. Now I was autistic, blah, blah, blah. So I um, put that behind me and just moved forward and went on with my life. But then after I had my son, I learned about the school to prison pipeline and how black and brown males in particular, mm -hmm. followed by like the girls and then students that are like low income or with a disability have a higher propensity of being suspended from schools. Mm. And when kids are suspended, they are not learning. So we see these really big gaps in reading and math and we're like, oh, we have to close these achievement gaps, but we're not looking at the source of the problem, mm. which oftentimes can be exclusionary discipline, taking a kid out of the classroom. Also in that students are arrested. So I, I think I just spoke a little bit about the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And in that work, a lot of times kids first interaction with the police is at school. Mm. Sometimes teachers don't have the resources to manage their classes. They call on police. And we and I found mm. in my research in the book that I wrote, which is called Kids in Cuffs, Striving for Equity and Empathy in mm -hmm. Education. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a really good book. I would highly recommend. But I do um, share just like different data points that shows just how this cycle is just so like deeply rooted. And it's going to take all of us like as parents to number one, be informed about what's going on. Don't just mm -hmm. think it's, it's a one-off. Mm -hmm. Don't let people tell you, oh, your son is misbehaving or your daughter's talking back when they're just advocating for themselves, mm -hmm. when they're asking questions. Um, teachers may get annoyed by kids mm -hmm. and they consider that to be offensive mm -hmm. and you can get suspended for that. Mm -hmm. um, there's data that shows students with like dreadlocks or girls that want to wear weaves or extensions violates the dress code. Mm -hmm. So as parents, like we need to know what's going on that's mm. number one and I know in many school districts at the beginning of the school year they send you this I don't know 30 40 page code of conduct and you like check the box I read it and you probably haven't read it mm -hmm. I read it because I did research but before that I've never read that and I'm sure my mother who has four kids hasn't read it either but um being informed and then number two advocating for your child, like talking to the parent, making yourself known to the teachers and the elected leaders, and then being involved in the school if you have capacity. I know people have 
multiple kids and many jobs and different things, but figure out like how you can get involved. Is it the PTA? Is it showing up at the classroom once a month for an hour? Many different things, but that's, that's kind of like what I've been putting out there that just really ignites my passion every day as a parent. Yeah. Wow. You just said so much. I talk a lot. (laughs) No, no, no. It's just a whole lot of great information that could actually, you know, we could unpack so many different aspects of what you just said. I want to go back to where you talk about how we're looking, we we look at the, the, um, the pipeline to prison, but we don't think about how it starts right in school with kids being pretty much targeted not and it may not be intentional but the impact is great and this is what i try to explain to people you know a teacher may say well i didn't intend for them to be arrested or i didn't intend for them to be suspended i just needed some help in the classroom but the impact to that student Mm-hmm. is that they were arrested, they were suspended, they were t- taken out of the classroom. And like you said, for advocating for themselves, mm-hmm. right? One of the things that I find is that we tend to be a lot more passionate when we're speaking. <laughs> Our kids tend to be more passionate when they're speaking. Yeah. And the receiver of that may take it differently and therefore feel threatened or feel as though it is it is intended as harm towards them and then they now want to you know call the police call security and 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 do things of that nature have you thought about the different ways that we communicate that can contribute to this pipeline Yes. So that's, that's a really good point. And I do want to touch on some things that you said. So one of the things I heard that, one of the things I think I heard is that teachers may not have intention of the student getting arrested when they call the police in, but it is a police officer's job to enforce the law. So if you call the police into the situation, you, you need to know like what those ramifications are. I never served in the classroom. So let me be crystal mm-hmm. clear about that. I have one son whose personality I know, so it's easier for me to navigate that. And I know with teachers, sometimes our classrooms have like up to 30 kids. So you're dealing mm-hmm. with 30 different personalities. And yeah, it's not fair for one student to distract from the classroom and take away education time from the other kids. Sometimes kids aren't advocating for themselves. Sometimes they're just being kids, just doing like silly stuff. I was Mm -hmm. the class clown. So I always had like a wisecrack or (laughs) something to make people laugh. So like to your, your question around language, I think it goes back to teachers having implicit bias training. Because another word that you mentioned is that like if a, like one of our kids, they're talking, they're being loud and the teacher feels threatened. Why do you feel threatened by a tone of voice? Mm -hmm. Why do you feel threatened by that? And that goes back to implicit training. I mean, implicit bias training. You may feel threatened because your perception of Black kids is that they're all bad. They're all dangerous. And if they're yelling, the next thing is they're going to become violent. Mm -hmm. So like, while it's up to us to put these teachers on notice, 
I do also think it's up to like school leaders to make sure that teachers have the training to work with the populations that they're serving. Um, if you look at um, data for public schools in the US, it's about 80% white. Of that 80%, they're mostly white women. So we're right. talking about a very small percentage of teachers of color. I'm not even mm -hmm. talking about black teachers. I'm talking about teachers of color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that subset, black male teachers make up about 2%. So think about how that could change if you have a black male teacher and they're like black male students in the classroom. If the kid says something, I mean, I don't know what the kids are saying these days, but if they say something <laughs> that's like out of pocket, this black man can relate because this is the vocabulary that he is used to like he may have grown up in this space or he knows like oh this kid isn't serious he's just trying to be funny because he has that awareness of the population mm -hmm. that he's serving and oftentimes like sometimes teachers don't have it they just mm -hmm. don't have it and as a result it manifests in our children one of the data points in my book you have to get the book to get the exact data point but one uh -huh. of the things in there is that there was research that shows if there is a white teacher and there is a black student that has done something or not, the teacher perceives him to be guilty of whatever that thing may be and are more likely to punish that black student for the same offense as if a white student did it. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, they want the maximum punishment mm -hmm. for whatever that offense is. That's not me. That's not my opinion. That's that's research. That's research. Um, yeah. the that's data, data. point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting because I've also heard that this happens in, in workplaces, right? In workplaces, people are more likely to let go if they are black or of color than if they are white. They aren't given the same grace. And we, I mean, we can, it translates to every industry, it translates to everything. We can see it in the justice system, right? We know how people are treated if they're black mm -hmm. or any, from any marginalized community versus if they are white. We, we know this, right? We know the language that is used if the perpetrator, it happens to be a black person or a Latina person versus if the perpetrator is a white person. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we don't even need to see pictures. We read the copy and we're like, oh, okay, the perpetrator is white, right? Because mm -hmm. the language that is often used around different races, right? If you are part of this race, then this is the language we're gonna use. If you're part of this, this is the language we're gonna use. Mm -hmm. Just so that people, and and in its, ingrained it's kind of gets in, ingrained in us it goes across everything but the fact that it begins so early in schools is the thing that is really perplexing and very difficult so you just mentioned a statistic that was it 80 percent of teachers are white female um white white yeah and most of those are female Yes. Yes. I know, I, I've read that a lot of this has to do with the, the, the busing of students from Black communities 
into white communities, which completely destroyed the schools in the black communities, whereas the teachers in those communities were predominantly black women. So when I talk about the cost of racism, these are all the things that I'm talking about, the things that have been removed or taken away. Another industry that's that has been impacted in that same way is the the doula industry. Yeah, right. Doulas were mostly black women because, you know, white women didn't want to deal with that or you know, it was the enslaved women that would go in and help these white women have these babies. Then the medical industry said, you can't do that. You know, we're taking that away and took away a whole industry for black women. So this is a, this is, we're, so we're not talking about something that just started or just happening. We're talking about stuff that can be seen historically and proven historically as we, as we go through. Yes. And so, you know, you started off by saying, you know, that these, some of the, these things that you were oblivious to, you're not alone. We are socialized to be that way. Mm-hmm. We're socialized not to see what's happening because the more we dig into the history of things, the more obvious certain things become yeah. and the more uncomfortable it becomes for, you know, a certain sector of the population right it's like oh my god you know how can how could this be well this this is how it can be right so as we look for i mean you call you also said i used a word that was really interesting it was like exclusionary discipline right exclusionary discipline that's something that i have not heard before but that you know resonated very quickly i was like oh yes exclusionary discipline Can you talk a little bit more about that and talk a little bit more about how you're advocating, you know, within what you're doing and with and for your son in in all of this? Yes. So exclusionary discipline, it's it's actually like a simple term that just like you, I didn't I didn't even have a vocabulary for what what is that? Yeah, it's 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 essentially what we're talking about when kids are suspended and taken out of their normal classroom. So that means you're suspended and you go home or you have in-school suspension where you're in the class with a bunch of other kids, different ages, and there's just an adult there. And if you know the material that you're supposed to be doing in your class, then you're responsible for that. But no one's responsible for teaching that to you. And your teacher isn't responsible for bringing you up to speed. So that's um, exclusionary discipline, just excluding the kid from his or her normal academic activities. Uh, The second part of the question was like, what am I doing? Yeah. How are you advocating right now? You know, I know that you've written this book, but how are you advocating within your community for your son and, you know, in the school system or even at large, like making the information (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like wildly available. Yeah, putting yes. it out there. <laughs> so that's a that's a good question. Again, like my son is he's five. 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 But what does that mean? It means nothing, nothing. because um there's research that shows that suspensions for kids start as early as in preschool. So we're talking about four-year-olds and a prime example. I don't know, like when your kids were babies, like back in the day. 
if they were talking in class or doing whatever three and five-year-olds do, eating mm -hmm. dirt, pulling someone's <laughs> hair, like walking too close to a kid, they may go to timeout. So all the kids are in a circle and your kid is over in the corner. That's exclusionary discipline. They are being excluded from their normal activities. And some places go a step further and say, oh, your, your kid can't come back for two days. Mm -hmm. So there is no paper trail on it, but your kid is definitely being excluded. So definitely being suspended. And what I do, I actually have a really job where I get to work with um, educators. So they're um, in the classroom or they're former educators and we get to teach them how to be community organizers. So I'm their coach. Mm. So we work together in making noise in the community and elevating parent and parent and teacher and student voice. So I can walk into any elected official's office and say, oh, this is a date. I worked in public policy for 15 years. Okay. And, but like as a parent or having the teacher say, I have this student in my classroom who comes to class every day. He's super tired. He puts his head down. Students can't put their heads down in class. If a principal walks past, I'll get in trouble. So I have to write this student up and I write the student up three times and the student has to go to end school suspension. After that, he has to be suspended whole time the kid's parents work like an overnight shift. So he's responsible for like his brothers and sisters, or they live in a house with like different families. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the kid just can't get enough sleep or the kid actually has a medical condition that's undiagnosed mm -hmm. and he's hungry. Like so many other things, right? We just look at, um, we call it, when you think about a, a tree, like we just look at the leaves of it. So the symptoms of what's happening, but we're not looking at the roots, like what's underneath here that's causing the one thing. So like with that example, a teacher gets to, to say that to a school board member and the school board, they're responsible for modifying the code of conduct. They're responsible for passing the budget where okay, these kids need more counselors. These kids need social workers. We need to do breakfast in the classroom. We need to make sure that kids that qualify for free and reduced lunch get to take a meal home at night. Because oftentimes the kids that eat on Friday, sometimes mm -hmm. they don't get another meal until Monday when school starts. Mm -hmm. And all of those like little things that people overlook, or I mean, if it's a teacher, would he or she know like what's happening in the lives of like, 30 kids or 20 kids right. no like that's about building a relationship with with the students um, and, and figuring that out but it's so many other things that are happening so I get the opportunity to like really coach our um, civic leaders on how to navigate change mm -hmm. how to look within the system and figure out like who's the person what do we want changed who's the person that can give us that change how do we build power so you're you're telling me like my, my nephew, my husband's nephew had gotten into trouble, like almost got expelled from school because mm. he was late every morning. But he was late because the bus, the school bus, was late picking him up. <laughs> Therefore right. late dropping him off. Mm -hmm. So like these like little, little things we need to, we need to be mindful of. And I, I get to teach folks how to do that. So on the local level with their, school board leaders and sometimes depending on like the city you live it may be your city council 
you may not have like a board of trustees for mm -hmm. the school district. You may have a city council and the mayor makes decisions on behalf of education, or it may be your state reps mm -hmm. who are like at the Capitol, they serve in the public education committee, or even a step further, like Congress mm -hmm. who's responsible for the funding of mm -hmm. education and whatnot. Right. So you bring up a very good point that is really important for people to vote yes. <laughs> in their local <laughs> in their local elections. Yeah, I honestly, mm -hmm, yeah, I, I would rather you vote. Like if I had to choose, I'd rather you vote for your school board member than a president because yes. by the time a president policy trickles down to you, like another person is going to be in office. But this decision that the school board member makes going to impact you right here right now and guess what your property taxes are going to that school district and if you're like well I don't own a house I rent that money that you pay to rent goes to the owner who pays property taxes <laughs> you probably don't live in that community but you live in that community right yes absolutely that is something that we definitely need to be more aware of is that even if you're renting in a community and you're not you don't have kids or you know you you're you're still paying taxes mm -hmm. through the person who owns and it's still impacting you so if you're not advocating within that community then you're missing an opportunity right if you're not mm -hmm. voting in in that community you're still missing an opportunity to make change and not just for you, but for the whole community, for all, for the kids that are there and, and, and all of that, for sure. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, vote, vote for a school board, vote for local. <laughs> Look, vote and run. Like, why not run? And run, and run, yeah. I think a lot of people don't run. I mean, I haven't run, but I think, and I, I can speak for myself. Like for me, I always feel like, oh my goodness, it's going to be so much extra work for me to run, you know, to do, to, to be in politics, like politics, yeah. politics is like a dirty word almost, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think the world has evolved a lot. I, I will say that. And there are like tons of organizations that are in support of like women of color running, black mm -hmm. women running, they will help you do everything so i actually work for one of those organizations and if you're a member of our organization and you express an interest in running mm -hmm. for um office we hook you up like we show you how to campaign we let people know that these are opportunities for you to volunteer we help do the fundraising so it is an initial heavy lift but i feel like the skills that you acquire the fortitude that you build, just trying to run for office, knocking on those doors, getting rejection, getting <laughs> people that are excited. Like if I'm, if I, if you were to call me and you told me you were running for office, I would be like, that's awesome. Like, what do you need? Right. Like, can I do your website? Can I, I got $10. Can I give you $10 a month through your campaign? So there yeah. are people that want to support you, especially mm -hmm. people that look like you because they need that change. Mm -hmm. We've seen who's been at the helm since the inception of this country and it's just not working. Mm -hmm. And it's not working because it's not working. It's not working because it wasn't designed to work for us. So there's right. no like 
fixing, like you got to rebuild, like you have to come up with like a whole new thing. And to do that, you need people like you or even me who could could do the work, right? Right, right. Yeah, I said many times, I said, especially when you're looking at the workplace, it was never meant for diversity. You know, this new buzzword, diversity. It was never meant for diversity. It was meant for a specific demographic of the population. Yeah. And it has never veered from that. And so now as we try to make workplaces, even schools, more equitable and more inclusive, we are working within parameters that were never designed for that. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, you have to start differently, which is why I feel it's so important for entrepreneurs and small business owners to be the, the, the champions here because they are the smaller businesses. They are the ones that can say, no, we're going to do it differently. And this is how we're going to do it and create a momentum for everyone to kind of yeah. go, oh, why are they succeeding so much? Because well, because their workplace is now not designed for the traditional demographic. It's designed for the demographic that actually exists mm-hmm. in our society, which is a demographic that is very diverse. When you're talking about, you're talking about gender, you're talking about race, you're talking about um, uh, ability. You're just talking about all sorts of diversity this society has. We, and so we need to include them and, and make it equitable for all people so that pe- all people can succeed. Because just because you think someone can't succeed because they are different than you in some way, shape, or form does not mean that it is true. Yeah. It means that you are excluding them based on your bias. Yeah. Right? And I, I think like one way that we start to chip away at that is through empathy, like walking in a person's shoes. And one example that, like, as you were talking, that came to mind when my son was like in a stroller, I remember like, oh, we're going to go to the mall. So I was like still on maternity leave, but you know, like how you have to just like get out the house and try to find like this normalcy. So I lived in Austin at the time. It's really nice. Just like outdoor mall. We're going to go to the mall. I'm going to do whatever. And I just remember like pushing his stroller and some of the streets had like the, the truncated walkways or like mm. the curb cuts where you could just roll up. And some of them I'm like, right. Like random folks would like come and like lift the bottom of the stroller to like get it on the um, sidewalk. <laughs> and I yeah. try to go in like stores and some of the big department stores had the um, ADA doors. You could just like press the button and roll in. Some of them didn't. I get into another store, like they didn't have an elevator. I'm like, what? I, like the escalator wasn't working. I'm like, I need to get to the second floor. And I'm like, damn, like this is kind of, this is shitty. And this is just yes. like me going to the mall. Like, have y'all not thought about like the different <laughs> populations that aren't um, ambulatory? Like they don't walk, yeah. like, they spend money. Like, why are we not making this um, work for them? And like prior to me being in that space, I never thought about it. Yes. I can walk up a curb, I can open a door. Like it was, it was literally mind blowing. Yes. And I think like once we understand like the obstacles that other people face, like we can work together to design something that works 
for everybody. And even like fixing the doors or, I mean, by law, they're supposed to have automatic doors. Like it won't just benefit that one population. It'll benefit the people that have baby strollers or someone that sprained their ankle playing football. And now they need a little assistance for the next couple months while they rebound. So when we build with inclusivity in mind, it, it opens a world of just opportunities for everybody, every single one. Absolutely. Which is why I don't understand why people are so just like anti-evolving and, oh, we don't want to learn about race. We don't want to talk about racism. Why don't we talk about it, call a spade a spade and, and fix it? Like we don't have to have like this long drawn out conversation, but you said it early on, there's data, there's history, there's research. It's all there. Now yeah. let's, let's solve it. Like let's solve it. Yeah. I think when we talk, so, and, and this is why I think that diversity has become a buzzword. When we talk about diversity, people feel more comfortable because then they can say, oh, well, we're talking about women or we're talking about marginalized communities. We're talking about people with disabilities. We're talking about, we're talking about um, people with different genders. We're talking about all these things. But when we would bring race into it and we have to, there are many times that we have to bring race into it because there's also a hierarchy in that conversation. The number one beneficiaries of any diversity program in most companies are white women. Yes. So when a company says they have diversity, chances are that's what they're looking at. Mm -hmm. But we have white women in our, on our leadership team we have white women in here. That wasn't the point of diversity. Same as affirmative action. Mm -hmm. The number one beneficiaries of affirmative action are white women. It was not designed to be that, right? The same with food stamps, but yes. we were labeled the welfare queens. Yes, and but the number one beneficiaries of any of those social programs are white women. And so, that is why when you said, you know, what we need is empathy. What we need is for people to walk in other people's shoes to see how it affects them. That's so important. When I say we need to look at the history and unravel the history and see how this, the string that we're pulling on now in 20, in this year, right now, is reaches back through history to what happened at whatever other time back mm -hmm. then, because they're all there, right? But it's so important for people to understand that. And it's important that people also understand that the reason that, that it's important to bring race into the conversation is because there's a hierarchy of race. If the whiter you are, the righter you are, the more things benefit you. Mm -hmm. The darker you are, the wronger you are, and the more things oppress you. So it could be that you are, you think you're high in diversity. Now, I'm not into colorism. However, this hierarchy of color means that if you are constantly looking for a certain type, right? So let's say, you know, we know white white is right now we have white women now we have white 
looking Hispanic women, mm-hmm. right? This is how it works, right? This is how this is how racism, this is how race has worked historically to separate us all. And that is what people need to kind of understand, right? They just yeah. don't seem to put it all together. It's like it was created for that very reason to separate people and for people to also self-separate. Yeah. Yeah. People like chaos and like everything. I think <laughs> you can see my book cast um, in the background, like everything you named mm-hmm. um, Dr. Wilkerson talks uh, talks about it in her book. So yes, that is that book is on my list cast. I definitely want to read that book soon because I know I, I understand what she's the the title cast and so i'm like i need to dig into it a little bit more but really if we're walking in this if we're walking this in this world we're seeing it all the time right so if we go back to early too very early right so if we go back to education like you said it's so important for educators to get the training that they need in order to confront which is really what is necessary, right? In order to confront their own biases. Mm -hmm. And what I'm thinking and what I'm finding is, it's very hard for people to do that in a group setting because it's, I think so because it's embarrassing. I think that there's embarrassment, there's shame, there's guilt in that. And I think that when you're in a group setting, you don't want to be that vulnerable, right? You don't want to be that exposed. And so the defense mechanisms will always kick in because now you're, you, you don't know how safe you are in an environment where you're learning this, it's kicking things up for you, but you don't know if everybody is is kicking up the same thing for everybody else and if it's okay to speak up and if it's okay to you know really ask questions so i think that there has to be a a, a, a way to help people learn certain things yeah one-on-one or privately and then come into a group setting where you can where you've already kind of dealt with the initial you know what i mean yeah. i would i i think that's a good point and i think it's valid I would say like to the second part of your statement that that introspective work needs to start with, with you, right? I don't, we may not have capacity to do one-on-one, but you can read Cass, you can read my book, Kids and Cubs, like there's things that you can do. But to the first point, I think that in the group setting it it really depends on the facilitator like number one that's true all of us are racist we all have bias and if anyone is up there saying they don't have a racist bone in their body they're delusional and i think that with great facilitation if that person names that and you establish ground rules where people can feel safe and they model some of the challenges that they face like in mm-hmm. in relation to what they're talking about, then it'll give people the opportunity to shed those layers. It's not going to feel good. And I think that's part of the it's problem. It's never going to feel good. White people are too... Invested um, in feeling good and being... And a, feeling comfortable. Being, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, feeling comfortable. And I, I think what's funny about that, so like having a five-year-old, 
this kid will just like fart like all the time in the most like inappropriate places and I'm just like why are you doing that it's so disgusting and he's like laughing hysterically like he don't give a damn about our comfort our decorum <laughs> it you could be talking to President Obama Michelle Obama he'll just fart and that'll be it like and I think that we need to like lavish in being uncomfortable like that's the only way that you grow and now he does it so much I'm just like whatever (laughs) (laughs) and we can get there like with with um challenging racism like we have to get uncomfortable a couple times before we we get it right we absolutely do yeah and because you know it's it's like anything I say all the time when you start working out the first time you work out it's so uncomfortable the next day you're like so sore like i remember my son and i do boxing together the first time we went after we went the first time the next day we were both walking around here like we were like like oh my god like what happened right like it was so painful but then two days later we went back because we knew we had to go back in order for you know, in order for our muscles to get used to it and mm-hmm. to get to really kind of get rid of the pain, right? So we had to go back. It wasn't comfortable, but we had to go back. We didn't have the same pain afterward, Yeah. but you can still feel the growth, right? So you have to get uncomfortable for anything that is worth doing. You have to get uncomfortable before you can get a little comfortable. And then when you're comfortable, you got to stretch out you got to keep stretching. You got to keep stretching those muscles. You got to keep, because if you don't, what happens? You stop for three months, six months, then you come back. Then all of a sudden it's all uncomfortable. And I think like, even in your example, I know that like crazy workout folks, like once they get their groove, then they start like recruiting friends. Like, oh, you got to come to the gym with me. Right, right. I know. you, You bring people like into your passion and then now it's not just you and your son it's like five other people right like that's how we that's how we grow like that's how we evolve right and then you wonder well how can I talk to other people about it well you're gonna get so comfortable about it it's gonna come up when it's supposed to come up Mm -hmm. right and it's gonna seem really natural to you so what we're talking about is normalizing normalizing the conversation normalizing the thought patterns that you are able to correlate things normalizing that and then sharing it and it's the same with schools and the equitable treatment of students you have to deal with your self and then normalize not using those knee-jerk biases yes but thinking through those biases to get to a more equitable solution. Mm -hmm. So Jason did the same thing last week that Rashawn did this week. What happened to Jason last week is that's what should happen to Rashawn this week. Not, oh, well, Jason, you know, no parsing, no new, no, you know, oh, because, this because that no if we're being equitable what happens here needs to happen here 
mm-hmm. right? So if Jason was let off with a warning, Rashawn should be left off, off with a warning as well. We shouldn't be escalating Rashawn to be calling police and talking about, you know, well, I was scared. <laughs> That's a bias that just takes over and we need to stop yeah. that. We need to stop it in its tracks. And the only one who can do that is each one of us individual. Yeah. And at this point, I don't even know if it's a bias. I think it's just a lot. <laughs> like, it's, it's just like, like you said, a knee-jerk reaction. It's a like, knee-jerk I reaction. Felt threatened. Right. It's a knee-jerk reaction based on a bias that has been ingrained based on the media. Because the media is the number one place where we get our information and where we build our biases. We want yeah. to think that it's you know, whenever I do bias training, people want to say, oh, well, you know, family. No, family, friends, not media is the number one place that we get them. So if you're, you know, dealing with media, vary the media that you watch, (laughs) you know, advocate for different things within the media. There's so many ways to advocate for change that doesn't, that do not require you to You don't even need to run for office, right? Although we were talking about running for office, but there's so many ways to advocate for change that don't require you to run for office, that don't require you to be out in the streets, you know, protesting, that don't require you to do things that you feel you're you're not equipped for. There are other ways. That is a a great point. You make a really like phenomenal point because I I do think that like we all have different personalities. I am very much an introvert. You would not catch me having small talk. You would not catch me at the front of a picket line with the megaphone. Like that is not me, but my contribution to the work is empathy. Like I'm a good listener. Like you can tell me your story and we can craft a plan around that. I'm a good writer. So you can tell me like, this is a situation and I'm going to write like a, a beautiful story that will resonate with people. Some folks are great storytellers through filmmaking. And even when you think back on like civil rights movement, mm-hmm. right? Like you see MLK in the front, but it was so many women in the background, like doing the logistics, making the meals, painting the signs. And I think like in this work of empowerment, it's important that we're playing like within our skill set. Like there may be things that you want to get better at, like, oh, maybe I I do want to be a better public speaker. Like, what does that look like? Will there be opportunities? But if cooking and baking, like, is your jam, like, in this, contribute in a way that fulfills you. Yeah. Does that, yeah. Absolutely. I think that so many people look at the work in such a macro way. They go, I don't know how I could fit in here. I don't know how I could help. And they shut down. Mm-hmm. Whereas I say, what are you passionate about? Because whatever you're passionate about, I guarantee you there is a way for you to do something in this work Yeah, with that passion. And even in that, like you have, you have to know yourself because when you ask me that, I'm like, what answer does she want? Like, do you want to, <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, what am I passionate about today? Like what happened like in this moment? And, yeah. you know, sometimes we don't really know like who we are. Like we, we yes. live in this world and we kind of just like get through and we don't like, yes. we, sometimes we lose sense of self. Like our, our things change. Like I know 
for me, I've been working in public policy for 15 years and I was just telling my husband, like, okay, I decided that I wanted to do public policy when I was 17. <laughs> I'm about to be 38. Like, is this still what I wanna do? Like, does 17 year old Arshel like still dictate the things that I'm doing like right now in this space? So that, that goes back to just like self-care and being able to um, like feed yourself because you can't pour from an empty cup. I can't mm. like show up and say I'm passionate about kids and I'm passionate about this when I don't even know that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and the self-development, the self-reflection, um, the digging into self is so important. And like, you know, you said, that's what's going to allow you to be able to have the language to allow you to be able to um, have the capacity or maybe even the confidence now to go out and share what you've learned. And then you can say, well, I'm really passionate. You could be, it, it could be muse art, music. Um, I'm passionate about cleaning, getting things clean. Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever it is, you know who you are. You now know what you're passionate about. Now figure out how you can use that passion Absolutely. in that area to affect change because like i said i can i guarantee i guarantee there is some way that you can do it every yeah. industry every profession everything there is a way that you can affect change in this work but because we look at it so largely oh well the industry the, the film industry is, is so racist, the music industry, the this industry, the that industry. How can we think to ourselves that we can change a whole industry? We don't, we shut down. Yeah, but, but, man, I, I feel like we built all industries, but that's just me, but- <laughs> We built But like, even um, like, as you're, as you're talking, I'm just like, shout out to you for just your podcast and the platform and the amount of people that you get to touch one day I was going for a walk I can't remember it may have been like January I was listening to one of your speakers and it was a woman I cannot remember her name but she was an author and she was just talking about the statistics around like black women authors and like at that time my book was about 30 days published and she said that there was a publishing house that took a chance on her and they only, they, they, they like specialize in working with like black women and women of color. Yeah. I think people don't, people like don't understand that. Right. So there are some, like everyone has a story in them. Every single person. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be research driven. It could be poems. It could be a graphic, graphic novel, but like everyone has that a story inside of them but writing a book and getting it published just seems so insurmountable but mm -hmm. when I hear it from people like the woman on your podcast that inspired me and I have a friend who wants to write a book I'm like you need to listen to this podcast first before you get started like I know the blueprint like I know how to do it I, I actually went through a program it was very expensive but it was I loved it. Like it was the, the development that I needed, but I want her to hear that yeah. one story and you share your gifts by like giving all of us the platform to do the things that we need to do. 
yeah people like you like help us like realize our our passion so i appreciate that on multiple levels thank you thank you and i think that the person that you were talking about is naima she wrote her book uh raised as a lie and she she really did share so much about getting published and because she wasn't planning on writing a book yeah but here she had this amazing story and it just poured out of her and she was able to work with a company that helped her do it and that was focused on trying to help uh, black women do do their thing so yes well thank you i you know and that's the point of this whole podcast right it's it's so that we can share the obstacles that we encounter but also share some of the uh, solutions that we know of or that we can find you know with regard to this right so we were talking about what was happening in the schools and you shared well if we and we talked about well if you run for office in your local you know community that is a solution that is a something that can help and if we help teachers get the training that they need then maybe we can reduce the way that these things roll out you know sometimes so i you know i find that's why i love to do this because I get to speak to people like you, Arshel, and I speak to Naima, and I speak to, you know, different people all the time that have so much, that have such a wealth of information that's important for people to hear and understand and yeah. know, right? So wherever you are, get in where you fit in and yeah, go for it. <laughs> I love it, yes. Yes. Oh, I have my friend, uh, Kevin, uh, McDonald, who is the vice president of diversity diversity at Virginia Virginia State University, and that's what he said. He was like, "Just get in where you fit in and and do your thing because because that's that's what's needed, right? If we consider it a puzzle, you fit in one spot. Take that spot and and own own it, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever it is. So I love that you've written a book. And I'm definitely going to um, put it in the show notes. Tell us the title of your book again, Kids in Cuff. Striving for Equity and Empathy in Education. Striving for Equity and Empathy in Education. I love it. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about, but that you want to um, bring forth in this conversation? No, this has been, this has been great. Um, I feel like the questions that you've asked have, kind of like challenge me to like dig a little deeper as I'm talking I realized that some of the work that I've been doing has kind of been on autopilot for a couple years just you know like once you've done something for a decade Mm -hmm. like how do I like what's next like what what am I passionate about yeah like on an even deeper level and like how do I how do I tell this story because I'm not always like out knocking on doors and telling (laughs) school board leaders what they need to do but how do I impact my my locus of control like my other parent friends that we we don't talk about that like we talk about reality shows but like maybe there's an opportunity to talk um talk more about it and learn from them so this has been this has been great well I'm so glad well thank you so much for being here but you know before I let you go I have to ask you the question that I ask all my guests 
And that is, what is your favorite dish? Okay, I, I have two because one is not a dish. The answer okay. is popcorn. I can eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner. <laughs> My husband doesn't like that because it's it's actually a meal that we serve around here. <laughs> I love it. But I think lately I've really been into shrimp pasta. Just Ooh. like some noodles with lemon and olive oil, some herbs mm-hmm. and shrimp. Just, I feel like it's the perfect summer meal. So oh, that sounds so good right about now for real. <laughs> That is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Arshel. I'm so glad that that you that we were finally able to connect and get this done. Um, I wish you so much success with your book and everything that you're doing there to advocate for students in your local community. Thank you. I appreciate you so much for sharing your platform and shining light on the world. So keep doing the phenomenal. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at patreon.com backslash Cedrola Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget diversitydish.com. I'd love to work with you. See you soon.